This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Welcome, all of you. Uh, if you don't know me, and you probably don't, uh, my name is Ray Charles. I come here direct from the cemetery. Uh, first of all, let's thank Catalina for another wonderful lunch. Now, today we're really pleased to have with us two members of a very musical, talented family. And to introduce them, please welcome one of ASMEC's board members, not only a talented composer, arranger, band leader, but he keeps our website in order, Kim Richmond. Well, I'm honored to be asked to uh, introduce our guests for today. And uh, I'm going to be very short with this. Um, Bruce, especially, has been a friend and a colleague for many years. And uh, I knew his dad, too, which I suggested that he talk about a little bit. And as you see, he's going to do some performing today, he and Walt and uh, company. And uh, uh, Bruce has been in my band, my concert jazz orchestra, for many years. I've always valued his player. He's an amazing technician and, and uh, with uh, all kinds of, of, of capability. On very little practice, I must say. <laughs> he's just a natural player. I first became aware of him when he was at North Texas State and this was in the 60s, and they played one of my arrangements that I had recently done, uh, that I had given to Leon Breeden for them to play, and it was Hello Young Lovers, uh, arrangement I'd done uh, for actually for the Airman of Note at about this tempo, you know. And when the album came out, Bruce played it at, at this tempo, and uh, just really tore it up. So that's where I first, I said, who is this guy? My gosh. Then I became acquainted with his family, and he's been in my band for many years. He's been unavailable a lot for the band, and I finally found out why. It's because he's so busy as an orchestrator, notably, or Hans Zimmer, and so he keeps very busy. So I want to have him tell you a little bit about his career, but he thought that um, he would also like to perform and play. So I give you Bruce and Walt Fowler. Thank you. 
Some more later. With audience participation, perhaps. Yes. So, um, I guess it all starts with our dad, really. Yeah. And uh, he was a he was a, a such a great educator, and, and he really had a vision. He he uh, studied composition in Chicago and got his PhD and everything. And. Uh, when we were kids, I think I was about 10, my dad said, do you want to play an instrument? And I said, yeah, I'll try it. 
And so he goes in the closet and pulls out a trombone. And uh, because he was he was from the old school that his t teacher, uh, Sour Beer, I think was his name, right? He was from the old school, and he had all the composition students learn how to play at least one instrument from every family. So he had a violin, he had a flute, he had a trombone, had yeah. guitar. And he played them all. He played everything. So he passed those out, yeah. and he gave us each a Beethoven symphony. I got the seventh. <laughs> so we, and then we listened to all this stuff. Then he brought Duke Ellington over. And he, and he started introducing us to jazz. And we, we just, pretty soon our house was just full of music. Full of music. Coming from all the different yeah. rooms and everything. He had a great piano, Nine Foot Baldwin. Yeah. Which he sold for 2500 bucks or something like that. I'm not so sure about that deal. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't mind having it. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, so then as we progressed through school he started he you know there were the national stage band camps in those days and they these guys would bring jazz educators to different parts of the country i can remember we went to uh, reno one time we came down to yeah, california portland, portland, portland seattle salt lake city sacramento uh, i don't know and so he got in he got in, involved with those people and then he started to bring the jazz camps to salt lake city in the summer and he brought uh, George Shearing was the main guy. Gary Burton was there. And then he brought um, brass guys from L.A. and pl other players from L.A. Um, let's see, who was it? Well, Rossellino was there one time, and Doc Samerson was there. Gary Barone. And yeah. Billy Byers. There were a lot of guys. Then he, yeah, then this, so this graduated into a whole program, and he, he started uh, to, to just have this jazz program. So quite a few people here were in this. And what, what he did was he would bring guest faculty from L.A. and New York, and then he would, they would stay there for an entire week and play with the kids and teach the kids, and the kids just were thrilled with all of this and all these different great musicians coming up there. Oliver Nelson was there. Even Mancini showed up. But... um. This became like a, it was not called a, well, a jazz major, I guess, but it was really the, con the concept was to, instead of just giving the, giving the students only the pedantic way of learning harmony and stuff, he wanted to teach them how, what actually happens in the real world, professional world. So he incorporated that into the theory program and, and uh, the other things. He was, and my dad was great at teaching like theory and composition and stuff because he would invent like Harm, systems of harmony and then the kids would have to write in that system week by week so he kept getting their mind opened up farther and farther well all this is happening you know I never took, actually took a class from him but I yeah, me either. but but I sat there at the dinner table and watched him do amazing things like he could he could play five against four mm -hmm. with his hands and with against three with his foot <laughs> unbelievable he had close to perfect pitch also. He, just, you know. he played classical guitar and wrote a lot of pieces. We've recently been discovering some of his pieces. He had a yeah. violin sonata that my daughter's playing, which is really neat. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this jazz program went on for like three, it really became an official University of Utah thing for three years. And then the, fac the regular faculty freaked out 
because the success was so incredible. It went from like 19 students to 37 to 120 or something like that in three years. And so they got rid of, actually Lad McIntosh was teaching. And, and, they, and they got rid of this whole program. And so my dad drove down the street and found another college and just, <laughs> just shifted right it over the there. Yep. He said, do you guys want a great program? And the guy said, well, what is it? And he said, this jazz thing. So, so we even went there with Zappa and played yeah, with, for the kids that's right. and, and interacted with those kids. So anyway, the, the point being that we learned by osmosis, really, and lots of great records. We used to like to play with the records. And then he would bring us, then at a certain point, he'd bring people down here. And I, could, I came down here one time. At, well, I went, to, I went back to school. I went to North Texas for a year or two. And then I ended up back at the University of Utah. And then we came down to visit. And one of my friends, Sal Marquez, you guys probably know this guy, Sal was playing with Frank, and they had an audition. So I went, I went there, and my dad had been teaching me all that stuff about the, the rhythms, the like, seven over three and seven Super over four, and all that. So I had, I had been practicing that a bit. So when Zappa, he had a tune called Approximate, and that tune was the audition tune, and it had a bar that had, a thirteen over two, and then a. Four sixtieth notes, then eleven sixty fourth notes on the last beat. Is that what it was? Eleven. Let's try it one more. Two, three, four. I think that's it. And it was just X's. It was just X's. So like you could pick your own notes. Yeah. It had, but it had a shape. We were supposed to follow the shape. That's why we're doing that. And and you know, so we kind of could play it a little bit. But he could see that there was potential, and <laughs> because you know the thing is, he's going to make you practice two, 20 hours a day anyway. So basically, what 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 happened was he I was I went back to school, and then he called me and he said, "Do you want to join my Grand Wazoo Orchestra for we have this tour? It was like seven concerts. They went to Europe, they went to Berlin and uh, Den Haag and uh, London." And so, so he he says, "How high can you play?" And I said, "In those days, I, I could, I thought I could play an E flat above double B flat." So that's what I told him. So then he writes me a piece, clarinet and trombone duet, uh, with with the band, and it goes up to that note, you know, Jesus. E flat above the treble chord. So, so you know, I I almost got it. <laughs> I almost got it a couple of times. And then I dislocated my shoulder body, body surfing the day before the tour. So I had to hold my trombone with this sling on, you know. I've never he, heard he, this cut, he cut that tune out, so we never did play it. <laughs> he injured himself on purpose. <laughs> well, but you know, so obviously here's, not, here's another unbelievable experience of a teacher who, who teaches, <sighs> teaches you the, the art of perfection. And, and basically, he demands that you really know that music. And so I just practiced and practiced and practiced until I could play it. And, and then, uh, you know, I managed to survive to the next band. It was always like that. Right. He, he would never tell anybody if they weren't in the band anymore. He'd just have a new band. Yeah. So, so it's just, you know, I managed to survive a couple of those bands. Which is how I got into the band, too. Ruth Underwood quit, and then he decided to 
add five new members after that. And then we did uh, we did one tour, and then that was it for me. Although I, I never officially heard that I wasn't in the next band, so it was that same scenario. That's the Roxy and Elsewhere. Yeah, record. that's right. And then we, you know, so I was then I was finally out. You know, I, I was out, and I, and then we then he called me back, and we did a couple of records. Those orchestral Mike was on it, right? The orchestral favorites and the. Uh, Studio Ten, yeah, those are great records. And um, and then we were out. We ended up back in the band in '88. The last band we were both in there. We had a yeah. five-piece horn section in that band. It was awesome. Yeah, serious, eight hours a day rehearsals for five days a week for three months, just learning. Like, you it know. was like six o'clock till two a.m. Yeah, and at one forty-five he'd call the Black Page <laughs> or something like that, just to see if we could. If you could get it. By the time we started that tour, we we had about eighty songs in the book, and then every every sound check for during the tour was like a full rehearsal, and we would learn one to two more songs. And so by by the end of the tour, we had about one hundred and fifty songs in the book, all. And then, in, and he said, head. "No music stand." Yeah, no music stands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No music. I'll try to remember that. But then he, then he hangs up all the underwear that the women threw up on stage in a clothesline right in front of the horns. So it didn't matter if we had music stands or not. <laughs> what a strange thing. Yeah, pretty wild. But and you know, this unfortunately it was like it was the, he was sick already, you know. It was a sad thing. At the end of the tour, like it, yeah. he was getting pretty bad. So he didn't. It was a great thing, and and what a great experience, you know, to play with that guy. And and so let's see, where do we go from there? I mean, we 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 both played with a bunch of different people and stuff like that. And it's always they always learn something from everyone. Buddy Rich, you know. Yeah. He has a conniption fit, and then he's a nice guy. Frank holds it all in and beats the shit out of us on, on stage by talking to the audience. It's telling the audience the band sucks and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. In lyrics, you know, singing it. Yeah. That's, there, there, there are concerts where you can find that. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, anyway, I knocked around town here, and I was writing a lot of music. I wrote a lot of music for dance companies and things like that. I even wrote one little film, and uh, and we were just, you know, then I just got super lucky one day, and I was, I was, I met Shirley, Shirley Walker. I was, uh, I was working, there was a little TV movie that the guy wanted to, uh, to it was just strings, but he, but he had like, he said, he wanted me to copy it, me and my wife. And so we noticed that there's no scores to anything. So I said, you can't give this to a conductor because there's like a note here and there's an arrow here and there's a MIDI file and that's it. You know, just, so I said, I'll write them for you. So I wrote all of the scores for 300 bucks because he had no money. And I didn't even know. And then I went to the session and sure he goes, that's good orchestration, Bruce. And I said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> really true. And so then she says, well, would you like to do something else? And so she hired me to do this big cue at the end of a, um, Bird on a Wire. Hans, Hans is one of his early scores here. And it was the one where David Carradine dies. 
So it was like just massive freak out. He had seven saxes, you know, bass sax and everything, and he had massive orchestra with all this stuff. And so I just, he, he had done this on the keyboard. So it was just a massive black that went down. Wow. And it, because the, the guy, there's a big wire, you know, and he literally comes down the wire and back up. And so Hans, this is the way Hans interpreted wow. that, you know. And so I just wrote that, like, the basses and the celli in flatted ninths. And then as soon as they got to that part, they said, God, we've, we're, not, we're supposed to be in octaves, aren't we? You know? Right. Well, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. So... <laughs> It was, but it, you know, it was, you couldn't mess up as long as everybody had a note, <laughs> because right. it was just a massive sound, and I could see why Shirley just didn't want to do it. And then, then he wrote that had this other cue that where he had a, a third and a fourth, in the same chord, you know, and it just sounded wrong. But there was something happening on the screen. Some guy was sneaking up to the window or something like that. So. I just left it. I, I wasn't going to try to quote unquote fix it. So he says that was the very first thing that happened in that session was that cue. And surely stops the orchestra and goes, Bruce, are you sure about this? And I was shaking like a leaf. And Hans goes, I love it. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, that Hans was a big fan of my father's. He told me that my father was his only teacher. Wow. Waiting for the downbeat articles to come every couple of weeks. So that was, I mean, he, he helped me get that job, too. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. Shirley went off to be a composer, and we started doing orchestrations. And we were, in those days, it was, uh, he had a guy in Long Beach that would, had a little Mac printer, and he would print these sketches, and then he'd send a messenger over to my house, and he'd get there at 5 a.m., and I'd still be up, you know. I, you know, ended up trying to do all this stuff. That was, uh, that was League of Their Own. He, Kim worked on that a bit. Anyway, so this, this, so this went on. I, we were writing everything by hand, of course, and I didn't even have, I didn't get the, the, what the MIDI was really doing, what the subtlety of changing the volumes and the expressions in the middle and the modulation stuff in the MIDI itself. And as you know, as we progressed, he let, he kept me around and let me learn on the job, which was really great. And you know, we got yeah. to participate in a lot of big time stuff. And gradually, we got better at it. We still wrote by hand, and we had to really work hard on a lot of stuff. Um, and I was gonna I was telling Kim I was gonna tell this story like in we a big thing happened when we did Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide was about this submarine and the you know these guys, but the thing is, when you saw the submarine, it was just a little model in a smoke-filled room. And, and you, if you looked, if you really looked, you could figure that out. So Hans gave it the big, huge tune, the big, massive French horns, you know? And, it, and so that, that made it into a real thing. But the other, the other aspect of that one was the strings. He had the, he had the first violins crescendoing and decrescendoing in a different place than the seconds and a different place than the violas and a different place than the cello. So they were always like this. It was like waves. It was like being underwater. And I couldn't hear that in the MIDI, you know, because the MIDI wasn't as good then. And I didn't, actually, I wasn't expecting it to be like that. So he got pretty pissed and he said, uh, 
is there some way that, you know, I've got 128 levels of volume and you've got, what, mezzo forte and forte and forte, I mean, you've got about six. What are we going to do? So, so, so we started to go look, look in, into the file itself and look at every track, every string track, and, and watch the thing as it moved and then put that directly into the score, not knowing necessarily what, how, what the absolute dynamic was, but knowing the shape. Right. And so we did that on that very movie. The, the at last couple of days of that movie, we got it. It was okay. But that changed our whole method of working forever. So that's what we do now. We have we look at everything. We study all the all this all the MIDI. Really study the MIDI, and it keeps changing too. The way they do it, it's, it's different almost every movie. It keeps progressing. Yeah. Technology. Yeah, technology. So we, so I feel like we've got to have our technology together, you know, and, and, and as a composer, too, because the thing is, if you watch these guys, you can figure out how they do it. And, and it's like, it's really great to be able to play a cue for a, for a director or a producer, whoever's in charge, and have them really get what you're trying to do. So this, in a way, is is kind of sad as it is to see the the handwriting, handwritten scores, kind of getting rarer, and the the um, the piano playing, and then the then the sketch written, handwritten sketch, which has everything on it. See, we don't have that. We just have notes. We have to figure out what all the articulations are and the the dynamics and everything. But um, but on the other hand, you've got this the ability to have these guys hear an incredible mock-up. And I think all the guys, just about all the guys we work for are really great at doing that. Yeah. And they, they also clean it up so that it's, it's not nasty for us to try to move notes around and make them work. Right. Um, it's, most of the time it's pretty easy to do it because they've already done it. The guys that are really good, they have the note, like the notes are the right length and they're, they start in the right place, and all those dynamics are there, but it's still a different way of doing it. But I wanted to tell you quickly about this uh, this movie I just got to be the composer on. This was, a, this was a little monster film called The Rig, and it was, they had 15,000, you know, and they were interviewing like 15 composers or something like that. Oddly enough, I gave him this string freak out where I just conducted these strings and I said, just pick a note and follow me. And I did all this stuff. It was on this movie called Case 39 where this guy gets a bunch of hornets on him. He's afraid of hornets. And this little girl has the ability to kill you by having your worst fear come true. So, so we, and they couldn't find music for this scene. So I just said, follow me. And I was going like this. And like I'd hear one guy over there play some string stuff, and you know, I mean, they got—they're getting really good at it in town here. So I told these guys, I played them that, and they said, "God, we—we—that's great. We want to try that." And I said, "Well, here's what you have to do: you have to—it's ultra low budget, so you can do it as a union gig. Hire hire my friends that know how to do this, and then we'll just do it in one day." We'll do the whole movie in one day because we know you don't have enough money to, to do it. So my friend Kevin Koska and I and um, others, you know, we, we made sure that every single note was right. You know, we went over the, 
the orchestrations to the fine T and made absolutely sure that all the, there were no copying mistakes and no orchestration mistakes. And then we got the group. We had 32 violin, 32 strings and 10 brass, and we recorded 70 minutes in six hours. So it is, it is possible, you know. It's, wow. <laughs> so actually, we recorded more because we that was the rig? yeah we double tracked some wow. of them. Like we wow. we played the we played the the short notes in the morning and the big tunes in the afternoon. So that gave us sixty four strings, and it sounds like a regular regular score. But I I just wanted to say that because it's you know I think it, a lot of times we have such a hard time getting the job to stay union or to be able to get the great musicians, but it makes it so worth it. And you know, I I told I told them what what I'll do is if you pay for the musicians, I'll I'll just do it for a dollar up front, as long. But I get to keep, you know, half the publishing and half the master, so that so that if they license it, I can get paid later. And then they also made a schedule where I get paid down the road if they make a certain amount of money. So that was a that was cool. Anyway, that's, what do you got to add, Wally? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, good, good point. <laughs> well, I, mean, uh, I, I just, uh, I, I got my opportunity, well, obviously because of my dad, but Bruce also, he, he, he allowed me to be part of the team. He just thought I might be good at it. And uh, I, I didn't really know what orchestration was either, just like him. Now, why, why is that? Why didn't we know anything about that? <laughs> Strange, isn't it? We were just players, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm really a player, but but it seems like the thing about orchestration and arranging and composition too is it's there's a lot of common sense involved in this, you know. You really that's right. You, you just, just sort of you have to if you if you can hear what it's going to sound like, just rely on your instincts. That's you know it's the same as improvising in a strange way. You know, so I mean, basically, here's the thing with us. We, we're, we're lucky in the sense that we get to work on music that is actually going to get played, <laughs> for one thing. You don't have to fight to, uh, to get an orchestra. that Somebody's going to pay for it, and then get, it's going to get played really well, and, uh, and then it's, you know, it's going to be done in a day or two. I mean, the, the turnaround has gotten so insane. We did, like, the other day we did... <laughs> Two 275-bar cues and a 250-bar cue in one day. How do you do it? It's well, technology. It's technology, right. Yeah. We, we just clean. I mean, my method is I clean it up and I fly it into Finale. You know, I clean it up so that I know what it's going to look like when it goes in there and then just go through and do all the accents and the dynamics and everything. Try not to forget anything. You know, I mean, the, the, our whole goal is to make it sound great the first time through. That's really the truth. Yeah, that's right. No but I think also this whole thing of getting a chance to work with guys like, because Hans, the thing about him is he's a master communicator with directors and producers and, think, and people like that, uh, heads of companies. You know, some people that won't even acknowledge somebody like my existence. They go, "Where's Hans? We got to have Hans." You know, and then he'll come in and he'll just take charge and give them ideas. He he, say, he likes to say he's a he's a pretty good musician and he's a pretty good filmmaker, you know. And that's kind of a great way to look at it because you're participating in this whole process. 
the music is just part of the whole thing. And there's no reason not to just uh, really get communi good communication with the director, especially, and not fight. You know, like if like if you if the director doesn't like something, okay, just forget it. Do something else. Any questions, you guys? It, it, I mean, I've I've written quite a few cues in his things, but they're always usually something like jazz or, you know, something that it's a different kind of music. And we normally would mock that up. You know, there have been a couple of times when we didn't didn't have time and we got lucky and it still worked. But um, in general, they don't ever take a chance because everything's locked. You know, all this all the samples that they're going to use, all the percussion, say, or synthesizers or whatever, is, it's all locked with the picture, and they're not they don't change that anymore. Yeah. I don't I never I haven't seen that happen for a long time. On any of our stuff, I know it happens. It used to happen a lot. Like they'd have a five-four bar here, and they, right, they'd change it, and the orchestra would just play it. That's because they weren't married to some kind of a an electronic score. Right. And, it, and when it's married like this, we have to actually take it back, fix it, and do it on a different day or something like that. But meanwhile, they've they've they really. I try to. T I tell them, don't give me any cues if they're not really approved. Yeah, that's right. Because we don't want to do them twice. You know, although once we got lucky and the other one ended up working better. Well, I don't, I don't make the mock-ups. I, I make them if I'm composing, but if I'm, if I'm orchestrating, they have their guy, a bunch of guys making mock-ups, and then those, those mock-ups are good, really good, and then they break them down into stems so that basically we can, we can check the strings out separate from the brass and all that. That really helps us. And then we just get MP3s. We we go get them on a server, and then we do the work, and then we post them on an iDisc to the copyist or a server. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I'll often I'll just write down something like it was you know like a tune, and then put once it's in the computer though it's a different process because it, it never comes out until it's done. And basically, the thing that I'm learning now, late in life, getting a chance to write a little bit, is to is the, the way movies actually work with the continuity of the the music, you know, taking you through this movie, and how the th different themes recur and they maybe, you know, they change and they become different and they and they just basically carry you your emotions through the entire movie. And that's you know, it's, it's just really like a it's like a film editor thing, you know. Plus, I got a, ch a chance to work on that Public Enemies movie, and um, I was not a composer. I was a, sort of a music supervisor, but I was a really like a score music supervisor, whatever that is. But I but I was with the music editors for a couple of months, so I really saw what the music editors do. That's that's a valuable thing to learn. Absolutely, I think if you learned how to do the whole thing, that's the best thing you can do. Even making the stems for the orchestral session. Well, that's like a um, one stem might be short strings, another one with long strings, and then another one would be uh, brass, and one you know woodwinds. Percussion, low percussion, high percussion, mid percussion, pianos, um, 
ethnic instruments of various kinds. That there's a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and just, just so everything's all separated out completely. That's what they use to, to do the actual session. See, they need yeah. that not for us. We just sort of get the benefit of it accidentally. Yeah. They do that because they, when they record the thing, they, want, they need to be able to turn off the long strings when they're recording the actual real long string. Are you talking about the engineers? Yeah. Well, it's, it's going to be a Pro Tools operator. He's, they're, they're, they're usually going to be two Pro Tools guys. One guy has the playback, so he's got all the, all the stems and everything. And the other guy's recording the real orchestra. So they're separate. I was really lucky on that rig movie because I got one of the best guys in town. Kevin Globerman is his name. He was so fast, you know. He, he was editing it as we went. I couldn't believe it. Really uh, great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all of the mockups replaced by live musicians, or is it sort of a hybrid? It's a hybrid, 50-50. Yeah. I, I think all Dark Knight, they interviewed James Newton Howard and Hans, and he, they said it was about 50-50. And that decision was made before the session? Or, oh, was yeah. There, was everything replaced? And then Not everything. They decide what they're going to keep this month? Yeah, that's that that does happen because the thing is they can they can help if there's a problem say in the orchestra, they can just bring up the the samples a little bit and it yeah, and it makes right. the orchestra sound because what we did that when we did Lion King, he wrote this ridiculous violin part and I didn't know that it was impossible. It was, it went up to an F I think above high C, and it was and it was it was chromatic, so I mean the only persons that could play it would be like twelve year old Taiwanese girls, you know. <laughs> Because their fingers are too big, so we had this. Wow. We had like this. That's we had this funny. string section, and we, and we, and we recorded this thing. But it, and it was nasty. We kept making them try to do it again and again, and they just couldn't do it. So this, he just goes, and it sounds great. Because all those wrong notes sound like makes it sound kind of real when the samples are there. Yeah, they're they're also they're they're almost recording like brass is separate from the string. They start doing that all the time. Oh yeah, and we do, we double the string section a lot, yeah. and even triple it. That way, they have a lot of control, and they can use more. I mean, not playing the same part, playing like short strings. I'm not sure I agree with that method. Melody, yeah. Well, our, the thing we discovered that was a really a problem was when he when he got all the to the point when he decided he wanted to do the trumpet solo separate last. Because then yeah, the guy was, can't tune up. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. You know, he just Malcolm McNabb, and he's like he's tearing his hair out. Player, you know. So we, you know, I begged Hans. I said, God, let's just let the brass guys play together. You know, because that that automatically physics wise, it it forces the thing to be in tune. You know, I mean, if you fear, you got to remember, of course, that if. If you're talking about a real orchestra, then the harmony—I mean, the overtone series—dictates how the harmony works. But in a piano, you had to make that compromise. So every time they play these things on the piano, it's out of tune a little bit, especially down low. And I, I, that's not something everybody realizes. Yeah, you have to be careful. But I have another good story. We went to we went to uh, South Africa and we recorded a choir, a Soweto choir, for this movie called Power of One a long time ago. And we'd already done it here with a, with a bunch of studio singers. 
and we did it in London with a bunch of other singers, and then we went there, and those guys sing the natural scale. Their, na their seventh is flat in relation to a major seventh. And yet, when we put them all together, it kind of worked for some reason, even though that, those sevenths were definitely way different from each other. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because the natural one is somehow strong, you know, naturally strong with the overtone. That's another thing our dad taught us was about the physics. He was way into that stuff. So let's see, what else? Should we, uh, should we, you want to conduct these guys? You guys want to get conducted a bit? <laughs> we can do Come a freak on, out. fun. Okay, well, we got to play too, right? Yeah. Okay, guy. Piano. We got seven minutes? Yeah. <laughs> okay.
that enough? <laughs> Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.